Uh, welcome to the Matt Rushmore Podcast. <laughs> this is Jeff, and I'm joined, as usual, by my good friends Anderson. Hi. And Patty. Howdy. And Richard. What? And Michael. Uh, <laughs> um, Richard and Michael normally go head-to-head uh, against each other in the Mount Rushmore of any given topic. Uh, but this time around, uh, Patty and Anderson have uh, boondoggled their way into the podcast to be guests. And Michael is sitting here dumbfounded and Richard's just going with the flow. Um, so uh, the topic that we are going to debate and discuss and deliberate this episode is the Mount Rushmore of fictional books in movies. Whose topic was this? It was Jeff's. Yay. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, we've done the topics of movies and different topics regarding literature and books uh, so many times in the Mount Rushmore podcast, but I'm fascinated about how um, the power of literature often makes its way into cinema and it could uh, plot devices often uh, rotate around something important, a MacGuffin or a, a piece of knowledge or something that is found inside a book of some kind. So I thought it'd be fun to discuss uh, those things and not necessarily the real things like uh, the Holy Bible or um, I don't know, <laughs> the nuclear launch codes necessarily, but uh, fictional things. So um, uh, Michael's birthday is coming up next week. So it will, will have been the day before this podcast airs. So Michael, you go first. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, my first book, I think, is maybe the most obvious choice, but when you're talking about Rushmore, sometimes um, you do speak in um, an obvious language, and that is The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern from the film The Princess Bride from yeah, 1987. Also, also on my list, Michael. Very good. Guest judges uh, or competitors, Patty and Anderson, you guys can be like the ref in a WWE E match and you can you can oh I can knock can them unconscious that's great yeah. <laughs> I mean I've got a couple uh, of folding chairs in the closet will that help yeah. <laughs> what do you guys think of this choice that Richard and Michael have both selected I think it's I, uh, I think it's got depth it's got legs and uh, I hope it's leather bound ooh <laughs> that that sounds like a Cabernet or this choice um, the what is it about that book that made you choose that book in that film, Michael? Well, for me, I think that there is like this. I think the film probably could have stood on its own without the kind of um, additional narrative of the um, kind of uh, sick kid being visited by his grandfather, reading him this book. And, you know, there's just this really lovely kind of push and pull with um, – you know, Fred Savage and Peter Falk is this kid that, you know, obviously in the mid 80s just wants to stay in bed and play video games while he's sick and not listen to his grandpa reading a story. And um, I think the story itself works like if we just saw The Princess Bride as a film, it would probably be fun and funny because of all the because um, the way it was written. But I think that there's just this added depth of uh really personalizes the film and i just love the way that they keep kind of pulling out of the film to come back to uh this story being read and just little lines like uh you've already read that part and uh they kind of yada yada pass a love scene and it's just 
it really makes the film feel like it's being something that's read rather than something that's just being watched. It's a, it's a very mm-hmm. described film. And I think that, um, you know, um, William Goldman, it did such a amazing, um, like the screenplay for it is just so perfect. And I think that the addition of it being a book within the film about the thing that they're talking about is just, um, it's just perfect. Hey, Michael, have you read the uh, book at all? Long time ago, long, long time ago, probably so, like, you know, when I was 12 or 13. Sure. So the book itself, and I know this because we just read the book to our kids uh, in the last year, is actually William Goldman presents it as his abridged a, a version of the story, The Princess Bride by S. Morgan Stern. And throughout mm. the uh, throughout the story, he kind of breaks in with like little asides about how, oh, this is kind of S. Morgan Stern's you know, satire on on the uh, political scene in Gilt or in, in Florin at the time, um, making mm-hmm. it seem like Florin's a real place. Uh, so it's, it, it it gets very meta from a book perspective, and then you take that and you filter in what's going on in the movie that it's somebody reading a book to a kid when there actually was a book called The Princess Bride. And I just love the way that kind of all interplays. Oh, fun. So it, within the book... Uh, is William Goldman speaking as William Goldman? Or... Yes, he's speaking oh. as a, uh, a a version of William Goldman who has decided to abridge his favorite uh, novel from a kid, which was The Princess Bride. Ah, oh, it's funny. So he's kind of a Charlie here. Kaufman, Kaufman-esque before. Before Charlie oh. Kaufman, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Cool. Okay, that's a great first choice for both of you guys. Uh, you know, Anderson, it, I, it occurs to me that it's, I don't know, 11... 20 your time or something like that you don't have to stay on don't feel <laughs> like you have to <laughs> i have your... young children this is the only time i get okay <laughs> you are welcome to are you guys as in love uh patty and anderson with this film as uh many people seem to put this shawshank redemption we also all like, like elvis costello on their <laughs> myspace profile um, I, I would say yes, uh, mostly because Anderson and I actually happen to be on a, um, a social Zoom call once a week, and uh, one of the um, things that we discussed this past go-round was uh, we got into a debate on the most quotable movies ever, and The Princess Bride actually came up as one of the most quotable movies. Uh, so, ah. I mean, I, I, I have no issue speaking for Anderson and myself when I say, yeah, of course we love the movie. I mean, uh-huh. I, I'd be curious to meet the person who doesn't love the movie. Um, you know, there, there's there's definitely going to be some uh, sociopolitical or perhaps psychological issues with a person who does not love this movie. <laughs> one one might say it's inconceivable. It's one inconceivable. might. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, that is Richard Michael's first choice. Richard, what is your second choice? All right. So my second choice is um, from the movie Misery, and it's the book Misery Returns. Oh. Oh, which wow. is the book that Paul Sheldon is forced to write. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Also on my list. It's Richard. also on your list. Oh, holy balls. Oh, yep. boy. No, I, I, it's the book that he is forced to write after he's been sort of waylaid, kidnapped, hobbled, all sorts mm-hmm. of things by, by Annie, his captor. And I love the idea that it turns out to be his favorite book that he has written in that series. Mm-hmm under duress, under the, you know, the threat of death, basically, that he winds up under this pressure cooker 
coming up with something that's better than any of the other books he had written in the Misery series. Mm -hmm. Richard, let me ask you a question on that, just because, and, and you might be coming to this point, but if I'm not mistaken, from the, uh, when he was writing that book, um, Annie was essentially like an editor-publisher type and mm -hmm. like forced him to do rewrites because she didn't like what he was writing or didn't think it was fair. And so, yeah, because of that, he was forced to rewrite it a couple of times. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, you're, I think you're remembering that correctly. Um, I think that she does, as the obsessive fan sort of becomes the the voice of the reader in a lot of ways. So yeah, I think you're absolutely on, on point with that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that that choice and in counterpoint to um, The Princess by, Bride by S. Morgenstern, it's a an author writing a, creating a book that has an author that's separate from that author. Uh, and they're kind of using it as a, it's kind of the, um, in The Princess Bride, uh, the book within the movie gives them freedom to have a fairy tale in this modern world so they can react to the fairy tale components and call them sappy or it, it can it can be the structure that they kind of bounce up against and then the uh, the book within misery is Stephen King kind of lashing out at this audience that won't let him escape this pulpy genre that he's been um, that's mm -hmm. made him and has broken him too so i find that really interesting what what i liked what i liked about um the reaction of like annie wilkes to this is like um like the sheldon character is i wouldn't say he's super popular or super famous he kind of writes like kind of shitty books like i don't think that his i don't think that he's super wealthy i don't think that he is the most famous person as a writer but i love the idea of someone that uh has just like clung on to this really niche, um, you know, set of books. And I think that is such a perfect encapsulation of like fandom. When you take something in that becomes yours, that you know everything about, that you've, that you've devoted to, that you're starting to potentially like write fan fiction about because you think you understand the characters more than the author does. I think that is really, uh, quite interesting. I really liked, um, you know, ultimately, um, Sheldon's at this point in his life where he wants to put this all behind him. He, in the book that he just finishes up before he's found, um, you know, in his car crash, he killed off the main character and she can't have that. That is like, you know, it feels like all these like crazy uh, Star Wars, The Last Jedi people that have come in and like demanded that the characters are different than what they saw on screen because they, you know, quote unquote, know better. And uh, you know, obviously it's taken to a murderous degree as uh, Stephen King is wont to do, but like that, you watch this film and you totally understand the psyche of like a crazy fan who uh, uh, is just constantly trying to correct the things that the author has done and they're like, they just can't accept it. Mm -hmm. it it's the also interesting freedom. that it's, you know, I mean, from, from like a, 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 a very broad story spectrum, it's the plot of Whiplash before the movie Whiplash came out. And that is, you know, in order for someone to reach the apex of their art, they have to be tortured and go through hell. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, she yeah. says, not my tempo, cock a duty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Patty, what does the number 109 mean to you? Anything? 
109. No. It was episode in which you joined us for uh, to discuss cover songs better than the original. That oh. Was, uh, yeah. Okay, so that, yeah, that was the 109th episode. I was thinking season episode. one, episode nine. I wasn't on season one of this. <laughs> well, I, you know, Anderson... We, we, were, we were barely on season one. Fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, if uh, listeners, this is our halftime, so we're going to ask you to go back and dig into the archives. you got time on your hands. There's knock wood. There's not going to be another lockdown, but there might be. So you'll have the opportunity to... Um, uh, when you're not... Uh, joining when you're not traveling and flying and joining all your family for the holidays this season you'll have plenty of time to listen to this podcast and you should listen to episode 109 uh in which we discuss with patty cover songs that are better than the original and then anderson i know your voice your dulcet tones have appeared on a few episodes i think giving your suggestions for certain topics do you recall which ones i i was able to participate in the 100th episode party Mm -hmm. In oh, which yeah. uh, I brought the Spider-Man villain category. That's right. That's true. Ah, outstanding. My 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 son Felix is presently obsessed with Spider-Man villains. Um, we have this kind of daily or weekly ritual where we draw and cut out um, Spider-Man paper dolls or just superhero paper dolls. We started with Star Wars paper dolls, and presently uh, we're just going through like the Sinister Six and these characters his favorite right now is the scorpion ah. and he just cuts out that scorpion and he stings you and max then gargan it's the, then it's the rhino and the rhino and it just we just have this like these crumpled up kind of bending paper dolls and it's all it's all spider-man guys they're just knocking each other down nice i hope he defeats them as easily as spider-man right usually usually he knocks them down and as soon as they knock down uh, felix will say uh and they push a button and they get back up Oh, okay. I don't know where he got that. I don't know where he got that from. Where that is just like the life. The rule of life is that you get knocked down and someone pushes a button and they get back up. But... Do you have a Jake Jonah Jameson uh, uh, cutout doll? No, but he wants to do uh, Doctor Kurt Connors before he turns into the lizard. Oh, okay. It's very strange. Very strange. So make sure you cut the one arm off. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So you can get download and listen to those past episodes. We would uh, love it if you did that. And you could be like Patty uh, and Anderson and maybe even influence future episodes by suggesting topics that we could uh, point our brilliant intellects towards and aim our rapier with at. So that would be a solid if you did that for us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And it's safe to go back on Twitter now because the yeah. babbling yam bag is gone <laughs> for the most part. Or he's, he's waning. His power is waning. And apparently it works on Zoom, too, because I, I, I did not realize you could Zoom bomb episodes of the Mount Rushmore podcast. <laughs> you can go and yeah, listen well, while they're being taped. <laughs> how do you think Anderson and I got here tonight? <laughs> we just kept pushing random numbers and joining random meetings until we found this one. We we found the passcode on the dark web. Yes. yes uh, it cost uh, me eight bitcoins. I want to see you guys just randomly drop, drop into a four-hour Joe Rogan experience. <laughs> Okay, so we are now going to move on to our third uh, round, which is Michael Winfield saying something that who knows Richard might say the same thing. What's your third choice? Uh, it looks like right. in that path, and yeah. um, if this really is a birthday wish of mine, we'll get the same four and end this podcast for forever. But it is the um, <laughs> it is 
the handbook for the recently deceased in Beetlejuice. Also on our Not on your Richard. What I love about this book is that it plays like a a pivotal but kind of unsuspecting central role throughout this entire film is, um, you know, Adam and Barbara Bland are killed when their car goes off the Winter River Bridge and they walk back to their house after who knows how many months um, wandering in kind of like the netherworld and they walk inside and, you know, on their side table is this book that, um, you know, quote reads like um, stereo instructions. They don't know what's going on. They don't really know that they're dead for a little bit. And um, the book does really help them out. It's written in a way that uh, all of the ghosts and phantasms and people that have been dead for X hundreds of years seem to take it for granted, but they're just have no idea what's going on. And they're constantly being chided by um, either Juno, their caseworker for not having brought it with them or uh, it falls into the hands of Lydia Dietz or, and ultimately falls into the hands of Otho. And I like that this book is this thing that ingratiates them to Lydia, who befriends them because of it. But then also is this um, uh, kind of totem for uh, Otho to attack them and become the actual villain of the film. I mean, Beetlejuice is like this kind of mischievous character and he you know he kind of fucks with them but like he's he's not that bad oh those are a real dick and you know he resurrects them and uses this power and quite know what he's doing but i love that this book is this thing that is kind of carried through the film as uh something that they that no one quite understands um well with maybe except for lydia but i i, I just love that the imagery on the book itself of this couple having passed into the afterlife and maybe the cover of the book changes depending on who gets it. And um, just the whole conceit of it, I think is uh, really great. Well, I mean, you bring up kind of an interesting point and that is, I mean, yeah, it's supposed to be there to help them through the afterlife, but with the case that you've presented, the book is actually the villain of the movie. I mean, no good <laughs> comes from this book for the couple, right? Yeah. Yeah. The book creates the chaos that they, and were they not to have the book, would they have found other help or no? No, it's not like other help is waiting, is it? Well, the other help that was out there was, you know, Beetlejuice in like an ad, you know, a, uh -huh. yeah. a back page ad of a magazine, you know, basically a, a help wanted section or even worse. Yeah. Sell grit, hire Beetlejuice. Yeah. <laughs> grit, America's <laughs> family newspaper. Right. Oh, it's always this close to <laughs> selling grit. Um, well, you know, as a uh, couple, a as a person who has been in many long-term relationships in a 20-year relationship uh, most recently, um, there is no handbook to uh, being in a relationship. And the, the sometimes the messages you get from the most reliable sources do more harm than good. They confuse you and, and confound you. They show you the conventional way versus the way you have to work out with the person you're with. So I, I do think in that film, um, their marriage is the um, um, 
death is the thing that brings them together as a couple. Um, they think it's going to be this house, but it really, it's just this, this experience, this traumatic experience that they go through. So that is a, that is a funny, funny thing. I love that. It's not a book that somebody's writing because those have been what our suggestions have been so far. I was not a Beetlejuice aficionado when it came out. It took, mm. it took me a while to, to really appreciate it and understand it. I think because I thought it was about Beetlejuice and he's in the movie 17 minutes of the movie or something like that. There's something ridiculous. Like Beetlejuice is only in less than 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, that would be a, that would be a good topic. Uh, title yeah. characters of movies that you barely see. That you barely see. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Manfredi, what do you got? Well, before we move on, I just want to say I, I, when you suggested the topic, I read it and then forgot about the movies part and I just remembered the fictional books part. And I'm a little disappointed we didn't just go with fictional books because I could have gone with a Simpsons choice and done 40 ways to cook for people. Ah. Or, or humans. <laughs> but, but sadly enough, we can't do that. Um, so my third choice is the book Death and Taxes from the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Oh, cool. Okay. I don't know if you yeah. guys have seen this movie at all, it's a. I, I thought it was a very funny, poignant, well done movie. It's one of the one of the movies in the uh, era where where Will Ferrell was attempting to do yeah. more straight type roles. Yeah. And basically, he plays an IRS agent who starts hearing a narration voice in his head, a lovely British voice, female voice, who is narrating his life. And he goes to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist says, well, if it's a narrator, you should go see a literary professor. So he goes to a literary professor. They eventually figure out that the voice that he's hearing inside his head is this uh, very famous author. And he goes to visit her and basically she is writing the book of his life. Mm. And she, he, she is now stuck in writer's block and can't figure out how to finish it. But the one thing that she knows is that the main character who is Will Ferrell is going to die at the end of it and so it's this whole kind of story about him you know trying to come to terms with what is death and you know if his death is for a purpose of this everyone is going to die and if his death winds up becoming for this purpose of providing the kind of end point for this great novel is that better than just some random death, you know, 50 years from now, you know, on your bed, on your deathbed, dying of old age. Hmm. Um, very funny movie. Um, very, like I said, very poignant. And I just, I, I wish Emma Thompson, who played the uh, the uh, author, I wish she would narrate my life. That would be pretty <laughs> cool. I'd enjoy that. You know, that's one of those, I think I'd heard the genre described as high-low concept. It's like a high-concept plot with a very character-driven execution. I feel like right. like, uh, like Groundhog Day, there are these moments where it's a drama, where even this big, uh, hokey, finoki kind of plot um, doesn't overwhelm the fact that these people are feeling pain and uncertainty and loss. <laughs> and um, what's neat about that, too, is it's it's a book that is yet to be finished, right? Right, yeah, she yeah. is in the process of writing it. Mm -hmm. Question, in context of the movie, uh, I, I have not seen it. I, I'm, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't seen it. Does the the interaction that Will Ferrell's character have with the author, does that 
does it get meta enough that that makes it into her book? Like no, you know, it she... does. No, it does not. Okay. As far as I remember, it's been ten years since I've seen it. So yeah, because but... I mean, there there would be something kind of fun about that. You know, it's the old Bugs Bunny trope where like you know Daffy <laughs> Duck is arguing with the animator who's um uh you know actually creating him, and uh, yeah, it seems like that would be an opportunity for something like that. But mm -hmm. I guess it didn't in that movie. As a uh, motion graphics and VFX professional, Patty, you might enjoy the film. There's so much motion type in it that was done by a company called MK12 out of Kansas City. Okay. Who who did the Bond openings for uh, Casino Royale and a few films to follow? So, really cool typography, like in the film. So. Well, see, now I have two reasons to go check it out. Uh, a, yeah. Manfredi's recommendation, and B, uh, you know, a technical professional reason. I, okay, go. I got to watch this movie. And you write it off afterwards. Yeah, yeah spin that bad boy. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, your, your depth of uh, Kansas City Hollywood post-production professionals is fascinating. <laughs> He's the okay. Annie Wilkes of Kansas City post-production uh, professionals. Yes. I love it. Winfield, what's, what is it? What you got? What's the last one? Okay, my last one um, is... Uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from the 2005 film Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Also, the book, the radio play, the TV series, the, the fragrance, the, ever, the fragrance, the Mel Brooks version of it. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> um, what is I, I really focused on the idea of like a very central book within you know um, these movies and the hitchhiker's guide when i started thinking about it is uh just this wonderful way to get this one person arthur dent into this greater universe and for it to be this just you know it was wikipedia before wikipedia it was uh this collection of anecdotes and facts question mark about planets and things and drinks and sex and everything and he has no idea what's going on like i think what the greatest thing about this book is that it's presented to this person you know initially what in the mid 70s before information was so readily available right the idea of opening up your laptop or phone or whatever and looking anything up um you know 40 years ago is so different from today when it's just like okay, I can't quite remember the name of the lyrics to a song, so I can look up something close to it now, and I'll, I'll be able to find it. But the right. idea that you just, that there is information, whether it's true or not, um, at your fingertips, um, I think is great. And um, just the idea that he, you know, he um, runs into uh, uh, for uh, perfect, prefect, and he's his kind of friend and he's this friend that is a writer for this shitty book and this this guide and i just i just love this thing as um an artifact in this universe that everybody trusts and everybody knows about and um thompson being here if there's any person that i would love to just narrate um my life or anything uh, at least the movie would be just stephen fry yeah um and 
you know, I, I don't think there's too, there's a lot that can be said about his voice is just this perfectly um, enlightening yet also somehow condescending um, voice, which I think is what this what is needed for this um, for this book. I do think maybe in Europe they have uh, more use for for guidebooks than we do here. <laughs> you know, if 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 one could get in his uh, um, Morris Minor and drive to Italy or France or or uh, Germany, um, I think they there is a bigger culture uh, that supports that book. Obviously, we have guidebooks and things here, but I imagine uh, over there it's probably even more common place to have a big stack of these uh, on the shelf in your home of your 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 place or your grandparents or something. So this There's, I discovered um, this book when I was a teen when I was I think junior high, and that and the sequels were just something to kind of hold on to as adolescence was rattling my brain, <laughs> but loved it. What were we going to say? Um, you know, there seems to be, uh, yeah, I, I think the European travel aspect plays a big part of it. There's so much, uh, inter, inter, you know, country traveling that goes on within Europe. America doesn't quite have that. We tend to have like the, uh, here is the weird, giant ball of twine right the mystery spot here's the mystery spot here is like sam and max hit the road and all of a sudden uh you want to see the world's smallest fork i guess so like (laughs) all these like we're we're a country of like weird things rather a country of like how to interact with people well i mean we're a country of roadside attractions because we were the first country that actually had freeways and roads Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that and the fact that, you know, in Europe you've got like ninth century castles to look at, and we don't mm-hmm. have that kind of that kind of history really. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Good point. We had to have something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it almost seems like in, in the store some of these stories, the book is kind of an update to the treasure map that somebody might have or the, the some kind of map that um they might have had on their way on the adventure. So uh mm-hmm. all right, Richard, do you have one more? I do have one more. Okay. I can, I can tell you what Richard's last one's going to be. My it's last obviously... choice is Old Custer by Eli Cash. Ah! Okay, so I have it written down right here. Uh, what? Well, everyone knows that Custer died at Little Bighorn. Holy smokes. His book purposes, maybe he didn't. <laughs> Presupposing Man, I know this. you. Maybe he didn't. I know you. <laughs> you know me so well. Which... <laughs> well, I almost, I did almost... I did almost go with a family of geniuses. Yeah. From the same movie. Uh-huh. I could have I could have you were... mixed it up a little bit, but no. Well, that, that's it, it, old cut <laughs> the, the the line that you just said is is one of my favorite lines from any Wes Anderson film. Yeah. And I use that yeah. anytime someone I'm I'm watching or reading someone do something like pretentious and, and literary. This is uh, so we get to judge. We've got guests. Um, Patty Cullum and Anderson Dadu, who uh, get to review and help me judge. Of course, we had the similar choices. Misery uh, returns the book in... Wait, Liberty? Wait, Misery returns and um, The Princess Bride were both books within the stories, uh, Misery and The Princess Bride. And then um, Guidebook for the Recently Deceased was from Beetlejuice. Hitchhikers was the titular book from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then Death and Taxes from Stranger Than Fiction. And old Custer from the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> so I'm going to pick two of the easy ones. Misery uh, Returns and Princess Bride. So now Anderson 
and Patty, you guys each get to pick one. So we've been uh, texting back and forth uh, during this uh, podcast uh, to make sure that we're on the same page. And uh, one of the books that we both came up with at the same time uh, was Handbook for the Recently Deceased. So oh, I nice. know that we can uh, we, we can count that one as one of our picks. Nice. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. All right. And uh, what is the second? Is there a second one you want to pick? I really like the custard pick personally okay. um, yeah like wes anderson strikes a very um interesting note in a lot of films and the fact that um michael premeditated richard's pick i think warrants the value. that's that was a power move winfield that was strong that was very strong not only had it pre-picked yeah, it but had the 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 it was the passage from the book ready to go god that was great it was going to be either Richard was either going to pick that or he was going to pick Yeast Lords from Gentlemen Broncos. I was 50 50. <laughs> we could have gone either way. I could have gone either way. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anderson and I are both disappointed that nobody picked uh, Necronomicon Ex Mortes, the Ooh. Book of the Dead from the uh, Evil Dead series. But, Haku. Uh, Haku. Mm. Next day. Yes. <laughs> I sure. Sure. I have to say that that book was actually the one that inspired the topic. Uh, was over it? Halloween. Uh, yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, see. Okay. Nice. So we're definitely yeah. in the uh, the same zone. Um, so, so yes, I think those are our th those are our judgments, Anderson. That's right. That's right. The we, only we uh, by other one I was looking for was uh, there and back again, Bilbo Baggins's book. These guys don't like Lord of the Rings, so I decided to uh, to bail on that. Uh, uh, and your audience. I was playing to Jeff on that one. I know he's not a uh, a huge Lord of the Rings no, guy. Not much of a Tolkien guy. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, thank I, you. I guests. love it. These guys. Thank you, guests uh, Anderson Dadu and Patty Cullum. Uh, this has been the uh, Mount Rushmore of books within movies. I, as always, am Jeff. Suck it, Winfield. Michael. Nice. 